0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, Damien Carrick with you. Welcome to the Law Report. Is it okay for an environmental activist group to use a company's registered trademark as part of a parody? That's going to be a key question before the Federal Court this Wednesday electricity giant AGL claims Greenpeace is breaching its intellectual property by featuring its logo in spoof advertisements which highlight the company's carbon emissions. That's coming up. On Monday... The ABC and Christian Porter announced that they had reached a settlement in a defamation action brought by the former Attorney-General. Christian Porter described the settlement as, quote, a humiliating backdown by the ABC, saying it was forced to say it regretted an online article. For its part, the ABC says Christian Porter has decided to discontinue his action, saying no damages will be paid, the article in question will remain available online, and it stands by the work of its journalist, Louise Milligan. To analyse what's just happened, I'm joined by Sydney University Professor David Rolfe. He's one of Australia's leading defamation law experts. David Rolfe, take us back to this ABC Online article in February. What did it focus on?
2: So the article in question was put up on ABC News Online and it suggested that there were historical rape allegations made against a cabinet minister, federal cabinet minister, but it didn't name the minister in question. And so it set out these allegations, obviously, of a very serious nature.
1: And the article didn't name Christian Porter, but he came forward some days later to say yes, it was about him and to strenuously deny any of the allegations in the letter were true. And those allegations contained in the letter related to an alleged rape when both uh, Porter and and a young woman who's now deceased were teenagers. and And the letter was actually by friends of the deceased. So shortly after Porter came forward, he commenced a defamation action. And that defamation action has now been settled or discontinued on Monday. What have both sides agreed to here
2: the position appears to be that porter has discontinued the action and so the abc and porter are not going to take any further steps in relation to the litigation it appears that no damages will be paid to porter and that mediation costs will be paid by the abc but presumably costs otherwise will be borne by the parties the ABC has expressed regret about a meaning which it contended that it didn't intend to convey by the article, but has also uh, reiterated its commitment to public interest journalism and um, to stand by the importance of this type of journalism.
1: Let me read out a part of the ABC statement, quote, the ABC did not intend to suggest that Mr Porter had committed the criminal offences alleged. The ABC did not contend that the serious accusations could be substantiated to the applicable legal standard, criminal or civil. However, both parties accept that some readers misinterpreted the article as an accusation of guilt against Mr Porter. That reading, which was not intended by the ABC, is regretted. So what does that mean?
2: So this really goes to one of the central issues in a defamation case, which was, you know, extremely significant in this particular case, which is what the words mean. And so defamation law is somewhat unusual because it doesn't turn upon what the publisher intends the words to mean, so simply because the ABC intended to convey or not to convey a particular meaning is not determinative of whether or not it's defamatory, and the fact that some people might understand it in a defamatory sense is also not determinative. So defamation proceeds on the basis of this slightly artificial construct of a single meaning to be ascribed to the words by the ordinary reasonable reader. So one of the sort of central contests here, and why this was, I think, very high-stakes litigation is that what Porter had pushed in his statement of claim whether the article conveyed as fact that these allegations were, in fact, not merely allegations, but, in fact, being conveyed by the ABC as if they were true, whereas the position that the ABC took was that the article was, in fact, just raising these allegations or things that needed to be further investigated. And until a court resolved that particular dispute... You couldn't then determine what defences would flow from that. And so in that statement there, what you see is the ABC saying that they didn't intend to convey a particular meaning. And if some people thought that that was the meaning that was intended, they expressed regret for that.
1: In your estimation, who's come off best, if if we can use that term, from this settlement or this discontinuance?
2: Well, I think... Because it was high stakes for both sides, I think both have backed down from their original position, and so I think it's fairly evenly split. So Porter hasn't had his day in court, but has received an expression of regret for the most serious meanings which he contended uh, were being conveyed. He hasn't received any damages. The ABC is permitted to retain the story online with an editorial note. They haven't had to pay any damages and it appears substantial costs, but it's an unusual unusual resolution of a defamation dispute because obviously it's played out slightly more publicly than most uh, settlements or discontinuances of defamation cases have.
1: So, David Rolfe, in the absence of paying damages of an apology of making the article unavailable, this expression of regret about how some readers might have interpreted the article, does that amount to a substantial concession in the greater scheme of things?
2: Well, it's a resolution of that threshold issue upon which everything else would hang. And so, it's important that it's an expression of regret and an expression of regret for the particular, not intending to convey a particular meaning. And so, in that light, it's not the most sort of significant climb down. It's really, in a sense, a sort of uh, agreeing to disagree about what the words mean. That then, of course, would have sort of flow-on consequences for what defences might have been available. But, as I say, it's essentially a sort of agreeing to disagree. We express regret if some people thought that a more serious meaning was conveyed. That's not what the ABC intended to convey. Their position has always been that it conveyed something less serious than that. And so... On that sort of threshold issue, essentially, they've agreed to disagree and the ABC has been able to merely express regret without having any of the other sort of more serious consequences like having to pay damages or to apologise and only being required to put an editorial note attached to the article, so there's not even a requirement to take down the article, which was part of the relief that was initially sought by Porter.
1: You said that the stakes were very high for both, and and this had been you know, described as the defamation trial of the century. So why do you think that both sides reached this deal? Can we put it that way?
2: Well, I think All litigation is risky and I think where the stakes are as high as this for on both sides, one never knows how the trial is going to play out. So once you actually get into the cauldron of litigation at trial, it's unclear which way these things will go and so it may be that things about Mr Porter or things about the conduct of the ABC might have come out and so that's all very difficult to control. And so where something is very highly charged with obvious political overtones, it's probably in the interests of all concerns if you can reach an amicable discontinuance or settlement not to actually litigate this to its final conclusion. Because, of course, if you did that, of course, you may not just have a very highly publicised trial that runs for several weeks during the rest of this year or early next year. There may be further appeals, and so defamation litigation, when it's gone to trial, is often very protracted and, as I say, risky about what can come out in evidence.
1: Leading defamation law expert, Professor David Rolfe from the University of Sydney. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, sending up a brand name to make a point. On Wednesday, the federal court will begin hearing a case brought by electricity giant AGL against environmental activist group Greenpeace. The company is arguing that Greenpeace has infringed the company's intellectual property. But Greenpeace lawyer Katrina Bullock says the environmental group will argue that public interest and open debate should always trump copyright and trademark legal protections.
3: So, AGL is an energy giant and AGL Energy has launched legal action against the environmental charity Greenpeace Australia Pacific following the launch of a Greenpeace campaign that called AGL out as Australia's biggest corporate climate polluter. Now, that claim is based on information published by the Australian government Clean Energy Regulator. So, that data shows that the coal behemoth is responsible for 8% of Australia's total emissions, so more than twice the amount of the next biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. And AGL currently generates 85% of its power from coal, with renewables making up just 10% of its portfolio. But despite its emissions and the fact that only a relatively small portion of its assets are renewable, AGL continues to advertise itself to the market as a leader in the transition to renewable energy. And a lot of its advertising is designed to give that impression.
1: Can you describe for me the campaign material aimed at the company.
3: So the campaign had a number of different elements. The release of a research report was the first element, and that showed AGL's contribution to the climate crisis. But then that report was accompanied by a digital online campaign in which Greenpeace published parodies of AGL's advertising. So parodies of advertising which the company had put out to convince people that it was a renewable energy leader. And that creative material included a parody of AGL's name and logo, which recast AGL as a new acronym for Australia's greatest liability. And the mock also also included the headline claim still Australia's biggest polluter and they prominently displayed the Greenpeace logo so that the viewer was aware who had authored the parodies.
1: The campaign material features the AGL logo, which are the letters AGL and a series of five blue rays or beams that come away from the letters. That features very prominently in the campaign. What's the legal action that AGL has taken against Greenpeace in light of this campaign? It, It It's alleging breach of copyright and breach of trademark. Isn't it?
3: That's correct. In relation to the trademark infringement claim, it's really important to note that in Australia, trademark infringement only occurs where a mark is used in the course of trade. And given that this is a public interest campaign conducted by a not for profit, which is designed to criticise AGL's environmental record and greenwashing practices, the campaign doesn't sell a good or service. So then turning to their copyright claim, copyright law has a built-in free speech safeguard known as fair dealing. AGL are alleging that its logo is protected by copyright and they're alleging that Greenpeace has breached that copyright. Greenpeace refutes that claim and says the use of the logo falls within that fair dealing exception to copyright. So in order to protect freedom of speech, and to the Copyright Act allows people to use creative works, even where they have copyright protection, where the use is a fair dealing for the purposes of criticism, review, parody or satire.
1: AGL have given me a statement. They've said, quote, AGL has no intention of stifling public debate. We do, however, reserve our rights to defend our brand under Australian law. The legal application seeks to prevent unlawful use of the AGL brand, including our logo, as part of a third-party campaign, and it is not at all intended to silence the campaign itself. So they would say that, look, talk about us as much as you want, but don't infringe our intellectual property rights.
3: Unfortunately for AGL, the law is designed to ensure that people can't use copyright to stifle the flow of information on matters of public interest.
1: Now, now observers might say, look, Greenpeace is very, very adept at media campaigns. It's what they do. And, and it is the one being strategic here, but you're very good at generating attention. Does this litigation serve your purposes perhaps as much as uh, AGLs?
3: It's quite interesting because if you you want to silence something, probably the last thing you should do is take a legal action in the courts to silence it because it will probably end up over the front page of um, most Australian mainstream media. It certainly isn't that harmful for the campaign that AGL has attempted to sue us in this way, but I think it is very harmful to their interests because over the last few weeks, you you would have seen a number of headlines: AGL sues environmental charity over campaign calling AGL out as Australia's biggest climate polluter. You know that that's information that they don't really want in the public domain. It's verifiable, publicly available government data, but it's also data that. They don't want their consumers and investors and the general public knowing because it does harm their brand.
1: Are you aware of other examples where copyright or trademark have been used to, as you would see it, to, to silence public debate?
3: it's actually quite common. Now, these things don't always make it to court because often what we find happens is there'll be a, a cease and desist letter held by the alleged copyright owner that's designed to to censor that criticism. And they don't always make it to court and they don't have judicial oversight. But um, one good example is in 2007, the New South Wales Minerals Council sought to have Newcastle-based group Rising Tide take down their campaign website. And that website was an anti-coal parody of the mining industry's life brought to you by mining advertisement and they, they sought to have that taken down on the grounds that copyright had been breached. And it's not just here in Australia that this sort of copyright silencing occurs, it's also overseas. So in 2002, uh, energy giant ExxonMobil who trades as ESSO overseas, launched unsuccessful legal action against Greenpeace France after Greenpeace France published caricatures of the ESSO trademark on its website. They used the ESSO logo and they switched out the S's with dollar signs. The French Supreme Court held that the caricatures, which were used to criticise the environmental policies pursued by ESSO, were protected on the grounds of freedom of speech. And We certainly hope that by the week's end, we will have a similar judgement here in Australia. Um, what about copyright?
1: Have, have there been any, in your view, uses of copyright law to stifle public debate?
3: Certainly. So there's also some really important examples over in the US where politicians have used it to hide their prior acts. So instances of copyright silencing used by politicians during election season in attempts to conceal harmful statements that they've made in the past or, or to censor criticism of their past behaviours. So in 2010, there was a Tea Party candidate, Sharon Engel, who ran for the US Senate seat in Nevada. And during the primary, she ran and she won on a really conservative platform. And advertising on her campaign website was very controversial. She had stances like phasing out social security and abolishing the Department of Education. So after she won the Republican nomination, she took down all her ultra-conservative website material in an attempt to win over moderate and independent voters. But of course, the campaign team of her competitor, the Democratic candidate, Harry Reid, saved that old version of the website and shared it on a new website called The Real Sharon Angle. And, And Sharon threatened a cease and desist letter. She threatened a lawsuit on the basis of copyright that they couldn't put up her old website. So this kind of copyright silencing to suppress freedom of speech, to suppress criticism, to try and shut down public debate in matters of public interest is happening the world over.
1: Greenpeace lawyer Katrina Bullock. The law report approached AGL, but it declined an interview. Sarah Hook is an expert in intellectual property law based at Western Sydney University. She says when it comes to unauthorised use of trademarks, there are two big legal questions. One, are the motivations commercial? And two, are consumers confused?
0: Yeah, so the issue would be whether when consumers look at that, are they thinking AGL has somehow authorised this or the origin of this ad is AGL or is it Obviously, parody because it's got Greenpeace there and it's saying Australia's biggest climate polluter. It's really about whether consumers would be confused and that would then lead to a conclusion that the mark is being used as a trademark to deceive people into clicking onto the link thinking it was AGL rather than Greenpeace. I don't think, in this case, the logo is that confusing. It is a parody. I think it would be obvious to anyone, even a harried customer, looking at this ad that it is a parody. That's just my opinion. There have been some overseas cases that turned out differently, and they were similar with using logos as a parody on on another website. In particular, in Canada, there was a a parody website of United Airlines, and in that case, the judge was looking at what consumers would be doing when they clicked on that website, which was called Untied rather than United as a bit of play, because that website did use the logo as well. And in that case, the court held that it was being used as a trademark because it was there, people would be confused thinking that the airline had sponsored the website and that it was their complaints department. And they had expert evidence uh, witnesses to come in and surveys from people saying, oh yes, I thought this was the United Airlines website and I was putting in a complaint about some service when actually it was a parody website that was telling people how to get legal services if they'd also been affected badly by this airline service.
1: Interesting though, because there's also an activism component to that website. I think it was Mr Cooperstock, who was a bit disgruntled with the service he'd received on United Airlines. So, he was using their logo as a form of activism to kind of identify other people who were disgruntled with the airline?
0: I think the the difference between that case and this case, though, is that people were genuinely confused over the website, thinking it was the airline's website. I think if Mr. Cooperstock had changed the – and he had changed the logo a little bit, I think he put a little frowny face on it or something, but it wasn't enough for the average consumer to be able to disassociate that website with the brand. And, of course, that was in Canada, though, under a different trademark regime. But still in Australia, we still do have that defence of not using a trademark as a trademark. And the fact that Greenpeace is not soliciting a product, they're not trying to say AGL is sponsoring anything, rather, it is an ad to call attention to an issue. I think that's going to be a major issue in the case, and probably what's going to set it apart from those other sort of similar parody cases across the world.
1: It's still very much a form of activism, though. And in yes. that case, that they refer to another dispute, which was between the Michelin tyre company and um, an auto workers trade union, and that involved flyers, which displayed representations of the, of the the Michelin man, you know, the big puffy guy, um, the, the character's called Bibendum, and one which showed workers with the caption, an image of the, the um, Michelin man and quote at risk of menace from Bibendum's boot. And what happened in that case?
0: Well, in that case, there was no confusion because it was obvious that there was no mistake about the source, and that was because of the different activities between the parties. So, obviously, manufacturing versus union organisation. So, that that idea of confusion, customer confusion, I think is the most relevant part of looking at these cases.
1: Mm. What about closer to home? Have there been many disputes around copyright or misuse of logos here in Australia?
0: When it comes to political speech, I'm not aware of many when it comes to logos. When it comes to copyright, we have had a few cases regarding parody and things like that, but nothing specifically on this issue. So I think this case is going to be a very interesting one because it's really going to try and tie what we've been seeing around the world to an Australian context.
1: There was a case in 2017 between Pokemon <laughs> and, yes. and Red Bubble. What was that issue
0: there? that case wasn't really about political speech, it was more about Redbubble which was an internet site where you can order t-shirts with whatever print you liked, uh, Whether the Redbubble was authorising people to commit copyright infringement because they weren't really looking at what people were printing on the, these t-shirts and so Pokemon, obviously they were using characters that were protected as artistic works and other works.
1: These cute little uh, animals like Pikachu and, and no doubt most That's parents right. would
0: be aware. Of them. Yep. Yep, that's right. Those little characters. And there were others as well. Those, in this case, I was just talking about the Pokemon because they were the one that was that brang the lawsuit. But Redbubble tried to argue that it was parody because they would change some of the characters, putting them in odd situations and things like that. And so, therefore, it came under our. Defense of parody and satire, which is a bit of a new defense, came out in 2006. However, the court held that it wasn't a parody because even though some of these cute little pictures might have been funny or had funny words on them, that wasn't really the purpose of what Redbubble was doing. Redbubble was commercializing on selling t shirts. That was the purpose of the infringing act. So when it comes to our defenses for copyright, it is the purpose of the act that is the most important. So is the purpose to parody? Is the purpose to Criticise, which is another defence, or is the purpose to really make money off somebody else's copyright material?
1: And if you're parodying or you're making a political point, then you're you're on safer ground. Look, interestingly though, there was there was also the case of Universal Music and Clive Palmer. That involved the the unauthorized use of um, <laughs> "Twisted Sister" twisted song. Sister, yeah. um, we're not going to take this anymore in Clive Palmer's, I think, either election advertising material or at his rallies. What happened there?
0: So that case was, I think, was a bit more complicated by the fact that Clive Palmer was aware that it was an infringing use because he asked for to get a license and then decided not to go ahead with the license and then use the material. So when the court was looking at the purpose of the the song and whether the purpose was to parody it, again, the court was holding, well, it's not really that he was parodying the song or making satire. Really, the purpose of that infringing act wasn't to bring to light criticism on an issue or parody on an issue. It was to get votes for his particular party brand. So they – especially the fact that they – could have gotten a licence but they decided not to and it was irrelevant whether the other party would have in fact given a licence because it is apparent that they probably did not like the terms of the licence and weren't going to go ahead with it. In that case, again, the use the, the use of the Act, the Infringing Act, What was the purpose of it? Was it for parody? No, it wasn't. It was to get votes. Even though you might be parodying something or criticising something, you still have to make sure that the intention behind it is to actually do that, not to commercialise off somebody else's copyright material.
1: Might that be an issue in the dispute between AGL and Greenpeace, that that Greenpeace perhaps are trying to sell themselves, position themselves by ridiculing AGL?
0: I don't think so. Only because what they are doing by using the logo, which is what they're going to argue is the artistic work, is they're parodying AGL's advertising by using an advertisement. I mean, that is what parody is about, art critiquing art. And here they're criticising the way that they advertise as being clean and energy efficient when they are in fact one of the biggest polluters, according to Greenpeace. So, Their actual purpose in those advertisements is to parody the ad. So the purpose is there.
1: Sarah Hook, looking at this from a different angle, you're also aware of cases where state actors have used copyright and intellectual property as a way of shielding themselves from public scrutiny.
0: There was a case where a Beverly Hills police officer, when they were questioning someone and about to bring them in, started playing ska music on their iPhone so that their conversation had this in the background and they did this once they realized that the person that they were apprehending was live streaming them was filming them and the talk was the reason that was done was to make sure that if that person then uploaded it it couldn't go viral because it would be caught in the copyright filters because they didn't have permission to use the song so that was all kind of just hearsay saying oh well we might think that's why they're doing it but then when it came to the yellow vest protest there were a few friends police officers that actually admitted that is what they were doing. They were playing I think it was a dirty dancing soundtrack over the top of their apprehension and of all these protesters just to make sure that any live streaming of things As
1: they arrested them or removed them from public spaces. That's
0: right. Yeah, so playing music that has some copyright work in the background, so like the dirty dancing soundtrack meant that if somebody was to upload that on social media straight away the algorithm them would pick that up as copyright music and it wouldn't allow them to play it unless you could somehow filter that out and re make it go viral. So a very clever use I guess of copyright but a real disturbing one because really it means that they're using copyright as a weapon when copyright is not meant to be a weapon it's meant to be there to allow our creators to enter their economic market exploit their work and it's really meant to incentivize creativity and this has nothing to do with with creativity or protecting somebody's copyright work it's really being used as this kind of tool to suppress fair criticism and reporting on news and things like that which is you know very disturbing
1: Dr Sarah Hook from the School of Law at Western Sydney University. That's the show for this week. A big thank you to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer Melissa May. Don't forget The Law Report is available from all your favourite podcast platforms. And at those platforms, please do leave us a review. It helps others find the program. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.